Dr. Dabrowski, where are you calling in from today? I'm calling in from the Boston area. I'm from Acton originally. Oh, well, I live in Natick. Okay. So we're both Metro West sort of. Yeah, good mall in Natick. I've been to that mall a lot. Oh, uh, yes. Hello, Slavic Connection listeners. Welcome to another episode. We had Dr. Patrice Dabrowski. Dr. Dabrowski is currently an associate of the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, a member of the board of directors of the Polish Institute of Arts and Sciences of America, and an editor of H. Poland. And she came on today to talk with us about her new book, The Carpathians, Discovering the Highlands of Poland and Ukraine from Cornell Press. Four, three, two, it's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Dabrowski, thank you very much for being on the podcast with us today. We're very excited to have you on to discuss your new book, The Carpathians, Discovering the Highlands of Poland and Ukraine. The book is divided into three sections. They're kind of these micro histories around these mountain ranges, this intersection of lowlanders versus highlanders, of outsiders coming in and discovering these regions and the tourist boom at the time, the interwar period. Speaking from personal experience, not a lot of people may be familiar with the Carpathians. So I was hoping to start off this discussion with a quick overview of what the Carpathians are and what got you interested in them. Well, very good. I'll start with that right away. Well, again, Carpathians tend to be a terra incognita in the West, for sure. Elsewhere, not not so well known either. And this is despite the fact that they happen to be the continuation of the Alps of West and Central Europe, which everyone knows about. Right. So it's a little puzzling that people don't continue just a little bit further east to see the wonderful arcing mountains that cross through the, the Czech lands, Slovakia, Poland, Ukraine, Romania, and, and back down heading southward. They are the watershed between the Baltic and Black Seas, and they are also the most prominent physical feature of what we used to call Eastern Europe. No pun intended there, but uh, <laughs> the mountains that I look at are also rather distinct in their regions, which is one way, one reason why the book is structured as it is. I think, I think especially it's fascinating because with, with mountains, they, for them, lines of territories doesn't matter to mountains. They go over everything. But when you have so much discussion about geopolitical, you know, divisions and stuff like that, then you have like these mountains that are overarching. And so that that for me was particularly fascinating to get, get into something like this that, again, as you mentioned, doesn't get discussed that often. Because the Carpathians, despite the fact that they're so central in the region, are politically very peripheral because they lie on the outskirts of most of these states that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. They, they don't figure in quite the same way as other regions for these various states in the area. I mean, perhaps more so for Slovakia, which tends to be much more mountainous in general. But for the other states, there it's actually quite a paradox that they're being taken in such an interest in, in the course of my book. So along those lines, you know, you mentioned that, you know, they're terra incognita, that they're not researched that often. What what got you interested in looking into this mountain range? Well, my acquaintance with the Carpathians goes back to when I was closer to your age. That is, I took a junior abroad in Poland with the Kościuszko Foundation. Oh, I, I won't tell you when. <laughs> Many years ago, it was still uh, communist Poland at the time. That much I can say. 
And I, well, I went there for what was supposed to be a year and ended up staying for three years, which did wonders for my Polish, but it also gave me lots of time to explore the country. And one of the things I did while I was in the country was learn how to climb mountains. I grew up in Southern California in the land of beaches and palm trees, not exactly a mountainous region. And so it was quite a revelation for me, much as it was in turn for the people who are the protagonists of my book, who are also discovering the mountains. But that, of course, is just how I came to meet the mountains. From an academic point of view, I didn't come to the mountains until much later in the game. And as I note in my acknowledgments, uh, someone sort of tipped me in that direction very gently way back when I was the greenest of graduate students. Uh, this was Professor Simon Shama, uh, who at that point had just written his major work, Landscape and Memory. And knowing of my interest in this part of the world, he asked me what landscape were Poles most in love with. And he had assumed that they would be the forests, the Białowieża forest, those great primeval forests on the border between Poland and Belarus, which he'd actually written about. So that's probably a good reason for him to think that. But uh, I countered with uh, a different answer. I thought it was the mountains, the Tatra mountains. And at the time, I didn't realize how right I was. But um, I, again, I didn't write my dissertation on mountains. No one back then was really doing much in the way of environmental history. That's come much more into, the, into popularity now. But after finishing my first book, that is my dissertation, I thought I would work on a topic that I came across while working on the dissertation. That is, what interested me was the fact that you have peasants in the 19th century who do not feel themselves to be national beings. That is, they don't identify themselves as Poles or Ukrainians or whatever. They're, they're local people. They're the emperor's people. They're Christians, something like that. And I wanted to find out what it took for them to become national. I probed that a little bit in my first book, which is entitled Commemorations in the Shaping of Modern Poland, which dealt with historical celebrations that took place at a time when there was no Polish state, which was before uh, World War I. But I wanted to pursue this further, and I thought it would be really interesting to look at a discrete group of peasants. That is not take a village per se or something like that, but to look at the Highlanders, the Tatra Mountain Highlanders or Gurale. And so I started probing this topic and looking for the encounter between lowlanders and highlanders. Well, one of the things I discovered very early on was that Poles who know anything about the Tatra Mountains say that in 1873, Dr. Titus Haubinski of Warsaw discovered the Tatra Mountains. Well, so that's a good place to begin. And I began to look into that discovery. I learned a thing or two about the organization that was founded in that same year, the first Polish Alpine Society, known as the Tatra Society. And I started reading in its papers. It produced a yearbook, among other things. And much to my surprise, in the very first number of that yearbook, the very first issue, that is, 
uh, I was reading not only about the, ta- uh, the Tatra Mountains and the Tatra Mountain Highlanders, but also about some Highlanders who were called Hootsels. Now, I had never heard of the Hootsels, so I had to read about who they were to find out that they were in the Eastern Carpathians, that is at the very other end of what was then the, the crown land of Galicia, part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And I was wondering, well, why are they being written about in this yearbook? Were they being discovered at that time too? So that sort of opened a whole nother field for me. And only later did I add the, the third component to my book, which was the discovery of the Bishchade Mountains that takes place at a later period. But this is sort of how I wandered into the topic and how the topic developed with time. I'm fascinated by how, you know, you found these like threads and it's almost geographically divided because, yeah, the, the Tatra Mountains are in the west, the eastern Carpathians is where the Hutzels are, and the Bishadu Mountains are central Carpathians. And you, you found that like central thread to bind them together. But I'm kind of on a, on a more curious note. I wanted to ask a little bit about your research methods because I, I'm fascinated. But how do you how do you approach studying mountain ranges? How do you approach this? Obviously, our archival research is one of them. But were there particular people that you got to interview as well for the book? That's a wonderful question. And of course, this time, for once, I was dealing with a topic that went into the post-war period. So indeed, I did get to sort of interview one of my protagonists, which I thought was quite thrilling. And let me tell you about that, because, of course, I used regular archives, libraries, museums, all the, the usual places in the United States and Poland, Ukraine, Austria. But I managed via the Internet. This is where, thank God for the Internet, right, which makes our conversation possible. I managed to f- locate one of the, my protagonists who lives in Australia now at the time. He left Poland right after the events that were taking place. So all of that is very fresh in his mind. Those are the last thoughts he had of Poland, where he had grown up and and spent much of his adult life until the communists essentially said, if you're going to Australia, you're going either very short or you're going to stay there. And he decided to stay. But uh, so what happened was uh, we uh, entered into our conversation via email, writing back and forth. And he sent me scan by scan pieces of his own personal archive. Wow. This was just the most wonderful treatment imaginable. I mean, it's a find that you have to stumble across. I mean, I tried to reach out to other people and I didn't have the same sort of luck. But with him, perfect. For me, as a historian, this was something that just doesn't happen very often because most of the people I deal with are dead. But in this case, it was nice to have the back and forth also to discuss my book and the topic and everything and and see if my interpretations of the material I'd found made sense to someone who was actually there. So that all was very important. But, But on the topic of other archives, well, one of the ones that was very good for me was in Ivano Frankis which is the closest archive to the Eastern Carpathians in uh, Western Ukraine. And that was an archive that had materials that I don't know that people had really looked much ever at, because these were materials from the Polish interwar period, when Ivano Frankis was Stanisławów, and it was part of uh, the Second Polish Republic. So there was this wonderful cache of 
of materials there that I got to look at. And that clued me in on the main protagonist for that part of the book, which also took me to Warsaw, to the Central Military Archive. Now, you don't anticipate going to the Central Military Archive for a Carpathian and Mountain book, but in this case, it made perfect sense. And that also proved to be very useful. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating how you've kind of led this path, but it, it connects all the dots. It all just kind of makes sense when you read the book. And so I did want to get into it because, you know, you, you, you talk about these discoveries, but there's, there's different discoveries. There's a timeline of these discoveries. Could you kind of tell us what these discoveries were, what they looked like? Oh, definitely. Well, again, I should mention again that the book is divided into three parts. The first part deals with the Tatras, Tatra Mountains of Galicia is actually the title of that part. And it goes into the earliest of my discoveries. In fact, this is the discovery that is the model for all of the discoveries to come. In this way, it has a particular salience, I think, because it shapes the whole idea of what it meant to discover a territory that was already to some extent known and even inhabited. Because again, we have the, the, the people I was talking about, the indigenous Highlanders, the Gurale, already very much alive and, well, maybe not well there because they were living off hard scrabble lands. The times were difficult. There was not much employment and things like that. But they certainly were there. And the territory was not penetrated for the first time by any stretch of the imagination in 1873. So what does it mean to discover the mountains? Well, this doctor that I mentioned earlier, Titus Haubinski, who came from Warsaw, was one to start to popularize the mountains. Not only did he come and vacation there that year, but he, he's the one who started sending his patients for reasons of health to vacation there. So that's one dimension of this. But there's also another interesting dimension of his discovery that I want to talk about because it talks about why he and maybe someone else was not so important. Because in 1873, at the time when he and his family were in the mountains, cholera made its way into the mountain region. Now, the good doctors didn't run away. He stayed there and took care of the sick. The Highlanders were just thrilled by this, of course. He was there, seen as their savior. And every summer they would be waiting for him to come back with open arms because he saved their lives. And so you have this kind of dimension of things going on there too. So that's one of the reasons why I think this discovery was credited to this Dr. Titus Haubinski. But the whole discovering is also connected to the fact that Poles at this time did not have a state of their own. Warsaw was in the Russian Empire, okay? And you may think it paradoxical for someone to come in from the other empire, from from across the Austro-Hungarian border, to do the discovering. And indeed, I think it is a bit paradoxical, especially when you think about the fact that for most Poles at that time, the mountains were not on their radar screen, so to speak. They were living in the plains, the flatlands. I mean, the name Poland, although it was not being used at the time, comes from the word for field. So to have those people from Warsaw coming into the mountains, I mean, the mountains were a true revelation for them. And while they're in the mountains, 
with the wonderful views and all kinds of other things to stimulate them and far away from the prying eyes of Russian gendarmes and all of that, they were able to work out solutions to burning questions of the day. And for Poles, of course, at this time, a burning question of the day was how to create a modern Polish nation at a time when there was no Polish state. That is, Poles had traditionally been seen as the nobility, the upper classes, the peasants who had not been part of the nation, so to speak. Here in the mountains, people who are looking to reach out to the peasants find the most attractive peasants imaginable, the Highlanders, these sort of feisty types, very get-go types, people you could talk to, not like the the peasants from the lowlands who tended to be a little bit more reserved in their treatment of the upper classes who had had earlier been their oppressors. So you have this coming together up in the mountains of the lowland poles and whom they hope would be the highland poles because they very much turned the Tatra highlanders into poor poles or primeval poles. That's how they saw them. They up in the mountains had been able to retain that Polishness that was disappearing in the lowlands over the period of partition, if not longer ago than that. Another thing that happened in the Tatra Mountains was the transformation of the the little village of Zakopane, which is where the, the Highlanders were living and where the lowland guests, the, the, the vacationers were coming to vacation, transforming it into a uh, highland resort, in, into a um, true tourist destination, and also into a Poland of the mind, if you would. It was a little island of Polishness at a time where elsewhere Polishness tended to be oppressed, certainly in, in, under Russian rule. Uh, Polishness was 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 definitely oppressed at this time. In in Galicia, it was a little bit different because uh, the emperor treated the nationalities a little bit more favorably. So they could they could relish being poles high up in the mountains in their own little community. The second discovery was that of the Hutzels and the Hutzel region of the Eastern Carpathians. Now this one took place a a little bit more spread out in time, let us say, in different stages. In only one instance did they actually claim to be discovering, that is using the term to discover, because that's one of the things that unites the three disparate parts of my book. The fact that they actually proclaimed that this area was discovered by so-and-so or we are discovering the Hutzel region, or we are discovering and discovering again the Bishchadu Mountains. So you have a very early discovery in the 1880s that involves none other than the very emperor of Austria-Hungary, Franz Josef, who comes into the region at that time for a visit. You also have the railway coming into the region towards the end of the century. And that opens up the region for the construction of spas and resorts. So you have other little Zakopanes sort of being created, except they're, they looked different from Zakopane. 
the Hutzels were different from the Highlanders in, in the Tatra Mountains. The relations were a little bit different. It was much more of a Galician discovery, so to speak, for a Habsburg type of discovery for the most part, although there were exceptions to the rule too, and I won't go into that. But the real big discovery <laughs> comes in the interwar period in the 1930s. Now here we already have a Polish state after all those years of without independent statehood. Now this new state is not a pure nation state. It may be called Poland, but a third of the population are what we would consider non-ethnic Poles. And a big problem for the new state was how to integrate these people into the state, how to make them into loyal citizens of Poland. And one of the experiments that they engaged in, and that's how I see this discovery as an experiment, took place in the Hutzel region. I, again, I don't think I'll go into the details of it, but it plays out they, they borrow a piece of history, of, of joint Polish Hutzel history, and try to use that as a justification for treating the, the Hutzels in a special way. And they engage with the Hutzels, they develop the region, they start you know, building uh, villas, and, and they want to build a hotel, and they do other things like that. They hold uh, ski competitions there, all sorts of things to get people to come into the region to support the Hutzels and then for the Hutzels to see some benefit in being part of the Polish state and perhaps to be loyal to the Polish state in that regard. Again, there's there's much more detail to, to all of that, and but um, perhaps I will leave that for the reader. Throughout actually this timeline, I'm I'm really curious because you know you are discussing this boom in tourism, which which brings its benefits, of course. Like you have the railway coming in, you have these now sources of money coming in, and people are coming to this region, becoming interested in this region. But there's there's downsides, obviously, to that as well. Could you could you get into that a little bit? Well, naturally, there's always downsides to tourism, especially tourism in a natural environment. This would be sort of the environmental historical side of, of the work because of, or actually is also the, the history of tourism is very apropos here too, because in a, a well-known book, Hal Rothman talked about devil's bargains, tourism as the devil's bargain. And indeed it is for the people who are in the area, but tourism also can wreak havoc with the environment. Uh, here, perhaps I can use this as a segue to talk a little bit about the third part of the book, where you can see part of that degradation taking place. Again, it's an interesting situation in the Bieszczady Mountains, because prior to the war, the Bieszczady Mountains had been very heavily populated by uh, other groups of Highlanders, by people called Boikos and Lemkos. But in the course of World War II, these populations were expelled from the region, either into the Soviet Union or they were dispersed in the western and northern parts of Poland in what was called Operation Vistula. And of course, the war was fought in the region. The Ukrainian nationalists were also fighting to gain control in the, of the region. And a lot of villages were just completely burned down, destroyed. 
the territory became a, a no man's land for the better part of a decade. And in that way, the territory reverted back to a wilderness. So this is a very funny situation uh, because most people imagine wilderness as a, some sort of something very primeval, right? Yes. Unchangeable. And here we have a new secondary wilderness, but one that is taken very much as this wonderful new region in Poland for tourists. Because at this time, you have the the Tatra Mountains being turned into a national park, so you can't really camp out and hike in them the same way you would normally. I mean, things are much more uh, restrained there because of the the national park status. But in the Bieszczady, you can sort of hike to your heart's content through the region. But, of course, one of the other problems with the Bieszczady region was that the state did not see the region quite the same way as the tourists did. And the state wanted to be able to develop the region. So we have this big tension in the third part of the book between what the state is trying to do to turn the Bieszczady Mountains into just another part of an industrializing Poland versus what the tourists want, which is for it to be left in peace. Certainly the, the highest reaches of the mountains not to be mined or to have lumber harvested there or other sorts of things like that, but rather to be left in their pristine state again, which we understand is not entirely pristine, but is still viewed as such. So yes, you've got this going on at the same time there. And so you can see how the environment is being attacked, at least from one side. It's a it's a theme that I appreciated, kind of that you touch on this balance of conservation versus development that sometimes might get glossed over, perhaps in just like a more just a straightforward history book. It would say like, yep, it was developed and then fell into ruin and then got rediscovered again. But to actually touch on that, because this is a massive ecological area and, and it is worth discussing that that humankind had an effect on this area. On the biodiversity of the region, too. I mean, there's a lot of flora and fauna there that's quite unique to the region. So all of this is affected when you have people trying to develop the region in other ways. So indeed. Yeah, the tourism element of this throughout was fascinating. <laughs> And this might be going back to an earlier section of the book, but I was kind of struck by how almost American this tourism to the frontier to discover our national character felt to me. Like it reminded, I kept thinking of the th like a Thoreau going to the woods because he wished to live deliberately. These, you know, Polish intellectuals go to the mountains because they wish to learn what they are and themselves. And we're all familiar with, you know, conversations about is there colonialism in Eastern Europe? And I know you mentioned this in the book briefly, you don't really get into it. But I, I don't know what to think about this. Your book made me think about it a lot. Like, what are they doing through tourism if they think it's themselves there and the people there relate to it, but they're able to resist it in other ways? What is the dynamic of like modernization in these regions? It, it just raised a lot of interesting questions for me. Well, definitely the whole idea of this being like the frontier, I think that's a great observation on your part. In many ways, it, it, they, they move in like colonists, don't they? Although they don't see the people they're colonizing in the same way that Americans saw, you know, the American Indians, right? Here they're embracing the people that they find and considering trying to incorporate them into the nation. 
but definitely you have this whole idea of you know leaving the cities behind going out into the wide open expanse finding freedom enacting freedom in the mountains all of this is very much part and parcel of what is happening certainly in the earlier part of the book in the future would you be happy or dismayed if the Carpathians received the same sort of attention and tourism that their more well-known counterparts to the West did? Well, some parts of the Carpathians already do. If you try to hike in the Tatra Mountains in the summer, you I are- have. It was rough. The Bishjade Mountains as well are getting much more that way. I mean, in this, uh, the highest mountain, Tarnitsa, now has wooden- stairway built up it because of the erosion, because so many people have wanted to climb it. You know, where some people say, oh, it's terrible to have it there. But in other ways, well, at least it means there won't be further erosion if people stick to the stairway. Right. And if you look at Independence Day in East in the Eastern Carpathians and the and the climb, the traditional climb of Mount Hoverla, you also see crowds after crowds of Ukrainians similarly engaged. So I can't say that this has not already happened. <laughs> My only really experience with mountains is Mount Fuji in Japan, and it's coming across the same problems as well. It's just crowds and crowds of tourism. You know, it's it's great for the country, very good in terms of promoting the country, but the sheer amount of just feet coming through, of bodies coming through, is in fact even kind of destroying the mountains and parts as well. Absolutely. Tourism destroys tourism is what they say. I also wanted to kind of touch on this uh, discussion also of, well, of, of the influence of national identity on the Poles and on the Ukrainians, because as you mentioned, you know, in the beginning, they didn't really connect with the mountains, but now they've become almost integral. Like how, how have they influenced Polish and Ukrainian culture? Maybe even more from a more contemporary perspective as, as well, like how the mountains have influenced Polish and Ukrainian culture and the people. Well, again, you know, back in the day, of course, there was a lot of literary works being written. So culturally, they they become integrated into the respective national literatures. That's part of it. Poles, from that point on, from the 1870s on, have become a people of mountain climbers. And in fact, I mean, you may not think of it this way, but even if you look at the, the climbers in the Himalayas, the second person to accomplish what is called the Himalayan crown that is to ascend to all of the 14, 8,000 meter plus peaks was Jerzy Kukurska. And you had all these Poles who in the times of, uh, in the communist times, wanted that freedom, wanted the experience of the mountains, and they just kept pushing the limits, much as they had originally pushed the limits in the Tatra mountains. As for the Ukrainians, I think it's fascinating to see how very much they have appropriated Hutzel culture into their own culture. There's a recent book by Maria Somnovitsky called Wild Music that deals with this in a very interesting way, talking about how, for, oh, for example, if you're familiar with the Eurovision contest, uh, most Americans aren't, but some are. <laughs> <laughs> you may remember Ruslana with her wild dances, which was baked on the Hutzels. And there's more people in Ukrainian musical culture who do this sort of thing today. And this is very current. So you can see that, you know, these things that, that started in the 
late 19th century and the early 20th century actually have an impact on how things are seen today. So that these peoples are very much in, and places are very much incorporated into the national mentality, if you would. I'm curious, is is this indigenous culture, is it, is it recognized as such? Is there an awareness that it's from the Hutzels or is it more kind of meshed in? And I think it's more meshed in. I, I think that we'll, I think in the Ukrainian case, I mean, a Hutzel is a Ukrainian, even though the Poles are trying to say otherwise in the interwar period. <laughs> they, they clearly did not succeed in that. And Poles, Gurale, are always sort of on the edge of Polish society. I mean, people see them as distinct and for many different reasons. And they've retained that distinctiveness through through to today. But they're still always considered very much as part and parcel of the Polish nation. Although right across the border, you had these Liptaks or Slovaks who spoke pretty much the same way that uh, the the Gurale spoke and the like, but you still have that that frontier there, that border, the line that's drawn and said, people here are north of the border are ours. So are they still using the mountains in the, in that way to kind of still like set up these divisions of you're over there, so that means you're that, you're over here, so that means you identify with us and that sort of thing? Well, probably not so much today. I don't think that's okay. an issue as 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 back then, especially now that the borders are open once again and you can hike across with impunity very much as how Ubinski and, and his people did back in the day because the, the Carpathian Mountains had been an internal border within the Habsburg Empire. That is, they separated the Austrian half from the Hungarian half. And there was no borderline drawn in there that people could not cross. I mean, there were places where they had there were there were more difficulties for a certain reason. But I mean, they just hiked across the, the high Tatras with, with disregard for, for, for any sort of boundaries or borders. Mountains without borders. I kind of like that idea. Yes. And actually, that's something that's more popular today, too, because you have these different organizations that are under the European Union that that are trying to work with the, the people across the borders, whether it be in the Tatra Mountain region or the Eastern Carpathians. It reminded me a lot of, there's a couple of them, but just histories of the Danube are another like common thing where people will talk about the, a whole, this one large geographic feature that defines a lot of similar narratives to the people that live along it. But Whereas one connects people, one makes it more difficult to get around, and so it makes it less of an accessible story. But do the people who live in the Carpathians have this kind of understanding of similar backgrounds to each other? Like, do the people living in the Highlands on the Polish side and the Slovak side of the, of the border understand this similarity with the people on the other side that you pointed out? You know, I'm not so sure today really how it goes because I haven't been speaking to people most generally across the border myself. I've I've been more or less on the Polish side of things. I mean, you would you would meet tourists in the mountains, but that's a very different sort of thing. I'm sure there's a certain commonality because there's a commonality of lifestyle, which I think one can see across the borders. And so these people probably have more in common with each other than they do with the lowlanders of their respective nations. But I don't think that, I think in this day and age, just because we're so much into nation states and nationalism, especially these days in this part of the world, that people essentially sometimes end up turning their backs on the frontiers and focusing more inward. 
So I would think early on with the accession to the European Union, you saw more openness. And now because of the present day politics, probably it's much more closed than it would be. Although, like I said, hiking, you can still cross the border with impunity. Well, I I wanted to ask at this point, Dr. Dobrowski, if there's anything we didn't touch on that you'd like to discuss, because, you know, we really want to showcase your book and your research in the episode. Yeah, well, again, I guess I would want to emphasize the fact that the significance of the mountains, as I as shown in my book, transcends the remote and peripheral position of the mountains vis-a-vis these these two nations, the Polish and the Ukrainian. That's that's one point that I would definitely want to make very clear that these mountains were used as a as realms of experimentation. I think I've used the word experiment at some point. But it, essentially, in each of the three cases, you have these regions being used as sort of case studies, if you will, uh, something that you can extrapolate from and go further with. So whether it's, it's claims for the nation, claims for the state, or claims for posterity, you can see all of this play out in these particular remote regions, which makes them much more central then per- peripheral in some way. In that same line, in terms of going forward, uh, do you have any research coming up that um, you're going to be looking into? Or are you staying on the topic of the Carpathians? Well, you know, I, there's different things I can be doing, of course. But uh, what I would like to stay with it to a certain extent, because what I've done in this book, I think, is just scratch the surface of the Carpathian Mountains. I mean, I really it, it is focused on the encounter between lowlanders and highlanders, this whole concept of discovery. And there's other things happening out there. And whether I end up writing about them or someone else does, I think it's certainly an an open field for people to work in. Well, we don't want to take up any more of your time today. We really appreciate you coming to speak with us. And uh, yeah, thank you. We're we're going to have to keep an eye out for your future research as well to kind of continue our um, discussion on the Carpathians and what's happening over there. Well, wonderful. Again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy week to talk with me about my book. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you.